You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Most of us grew up hearing the phrase, God works in mysterious ways. Some of us even grew up thinking that God works in mysterious ways was hidden somewhere, buried within our scriptures. I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room who probably searched tirelessly for that verse. Where is it in the Bible? Where does it say God works in mysterious ways? It's got to be there, right? I mean, we all know it. We've all heard it quoted time and time again. And I remember thinking as a young man, I really would like to know chapter and verse. I would like to know where that's located. So that way, whenever I share that with others to help them, to encourage them through tough times, I know exactly where to point them in God's word. And you can imagine my discouragement, as I'm sure many of you have felt discouraged before, to discover that that verse is not in the Bible. It's not there. Well, even though you won't find it explicitly stated in Scripture, That is not to say that God's methods are always predictable, because they aren't. Often we think we know how our lives should go. We believe we should go this way, we should go that way, this is how everything should turn out so long as we make our plans and we put the work in, this is what should happen. After all, two plus two always equals four. But God has other plans, more often than not. Better plans, but painful plans full of disappointment, hardship, adversity, and trial. The Apostle Paul knew firsthand what it felt like to make good plans and expect one thing, only to see God work in a mysterious and unexpected circumstance for the better advancement of the gospel. We need to remember that Paul is in Rome under house arrest when he writes to the Philippians. From AD 60 to 61, for two long years, he was one of Caesar's white-collar criminals, awaiting his court date. It all started when he was arrested in Jerusalem, but at that time, the Romans, they weren't quite sure what to do with Paul. I mean, after all, he hadn't technically committed a crime. He hadn't done anything wrong that they could point to, so they just kind of bounced him around in the legal system for as long as they could, and they kept him under custody there in Caesarea for two years. Eventually, in Acts 25, Paul appealed to Caesar, and then he was shipped off to Rome. And as many of you know, during that journey, he was shipwrecked, swimming for his life. He was marooned on the island of Malta for three months. Finally, after all of that and a couple other little adventures along the way, he eventually ended in Rome. All in all, Paul was unjustly incarcerated for at least five years. Think back. Just just think about that for a minute. Think back to wherever you were five years ago. That's how long this thing drug out for the Apostle Paul. It's during these last two years of his first Roman imprisonment when he writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and then our book, Philippians. He begins this letter with a few encouraging words and a prayer. And we've already examined that there in the introduction. And then here in verse 12, where we begin today, and for the rest of the chapter, he now shifts his attention towards his present circumstances with encouraging commentary on how the Lord has has used this terrible situation that he's in, and he has flipped the narrative around. He has actually taken bad circumstances, and he has used them for good. 
So please follow along with me as I read today's text. Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The title of this morning's message is The Unstoppable Gospel. Because no one is able to stop the gospel from moving forward. Men have tried, kings have tried, dictators have tried, emperors have tried, and yet the transformative power of God's word continues to advance. Those who exhaust themselves in silencing the gospel find themselves silenced in the end. Those who oppose the forward progress of God's truth inevitably fall behind as the word marches on. As the gospel rises, they fall. As the gospel runs, they stumble. As the gospel punches back, they are the ones who hit the mat. You can't stop the gospel. As Paul writes in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because he knows that the gospel is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul knew that God's power to save sinners is unstoppable. And so he made it his mission to share the gospel to as many people as he possibly could in as many major cities as he possibly could. As he embarked on his missionary journeys, there was, there was nothing arbitrary about where he went. He was very strategic in choosing the cities and the ports and the areas that he would visit. With each missions trip, he started in Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the ancient world, behind only Rome and Alexandria. He traveled to places like Athens, the hometown of historical giants like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, where the most preeminent philosophers had shaped Western thought in the Roman Empire. He went to Corinth, one of the wealthiest seaports and entertainment hubs in the world. Corinth was like Hollywood, Las Vegas, and Sports Central all rolled into one. He went to Ephesus, one of the most important commercial and religious epicenters of the known world. He preached the gospel strategically in the most populated areas so the truth would spread out with the greatest impact. And with each step that he took, Paul carried this burning desire to see the gospel preached in Rome. Rome was more than a capital city. It was the heart of of the civilized world. At that time, Rome had a population of more than one million people. It contained the political seats of power, Caesar's palace, the Colosseum, Circus Maximus, the aqueducts, and so much more were all found in Rome. The greatest technology, the greatest architecture, the greatest job opportunities, they were all centrally located here at the core of the entire Roman Empire. To reach Rome with the gospel would be to reach the known world with this power of God that is strong enough and capable enough to change men and women, to bring them into salvation. This is a dream for the Apostle Paul. Since the day that that he started to preach, from day one, his desire was to go to Rome, to infiltrate Rome with the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
In Romans 1, he writes to the Christians, he says, for God is my witness. Now, there's a strong witness. If you're going to call someone to the witness stand, who can you call beyond God? He says, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He goes on to say in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. And then again in verse 15, he just spells it out. I mean, Paul is gushing here in the first chapter of Romans. He's, He's bearing his heart for them to read. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. After this famous declaration, in the next verse, in verse 16, the one that I just quoted a few minutes ago, he then shouts, for, because, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul so desperately wanted to stand up in the public marketplace and herald the message of salvation, that Christ has ransomed lost sinners that he has reconciled them to a holy God through his death on the cross and that this salvation is a gift given by God, received by man, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Paul longed to see this powerful message injected into the bloodstream of Rome. He wanted to see it infect the world. He wanted to see it go out He wanted to see it start there in the heart and he wanted that lifeblood to just pump through the rest of the known world, through the rest of Western civilization. He wanted to go to Rome and he wanted to preach the gospel there, first and foremost. However, once he did arrive to Rome, once God did give him the desire of his heart, it didn't happen the way that he thought it would. He didn't arrive as an open-air preacher. He wasn't Paul the evangelist or Paul the public speaker. Instead, he arrived as a prisoner, chained to a guard, confined to a rented house, while waiting another two years for yet another court date. And yet, Paul preached his greatest sermons, and Paul had the greatest impact of his ministry for the spread of the gospel within those terrible circumstances. Naturally, we might assume that other churches like the Philippians, would be concerned for his well-being. And yet we see in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 1 that many who preach Christ are doing it with wrong motives. They're not doing it to lift high the cross. They're not doing it to infect the culture with the transforming power and the truth of, of Christ on the cross. They're doing it to hurt Paul. They're doing it to attack him, to kick him while he's down. And then in chapter 2, verse 20, he says that he has no one like Timothy. In chapter 4, he reminds the Philippians that no other church partnered with him after he left them, including the Thessalonians. Thessalonians were one of the best churches we have whenever we look at Scripture. They were a wonderful church, yet even they didn't partner with Paul after he left the Philippians. At this point, Paul has every right by human standards to just give up and to start feeling sorry for himself. Say, you know what? My ministry has come to an end. It's over. God has closed the door. My circumstances have dictated my ability to preach the gospel, to win others for the Lord. 
Instead, he rises above his present circumstances and he remains faithful where God has placed him. He writes back to the Philippians, to the church that has expressed the most concern for him, the church who has has cared the most. And he tells them, I love you, I'm praying for you, and by the way, those awful reports that you've heard about me, they're all true. Every single one of them. It's all true. But even though I am imprisoned, even though it looks as though my ministry is over, God's gospel is being released. Don't worry about me. God has taken my hardships and he has used them in ways that I could have never thought possible. In ways that I would have never imagined. God is at work. He is accomplishing his work through his powerful gospel. And for that I am so thankful. So as we walk through these three verses this morning, I want you to note three benefits of persecution. Three benefits that result from persecution. In the face of intense opposition, the first benefit that we see is that persecution removes the roadblocks. Removes the roadblocks. It has the opposite effect of what we would expect. Look at verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He begins this new section by saying, I want you to know. In other words, don't miss this. This is important. You need to know this. And he calls them brothers, that term of endearment. He says, we're family, you and I. We belong to the same household. God is our father. We have been adopted into the same divine family. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, my lack of support when I left you, my arrest in Jerusalem, my two years in legal limbo, my shipwreck in Malta, my house arrest in Rome, my current chains, and my impending trial with Caesar. Everything that has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Not just served, but really served to advance the gospel. This word advance, it's an unusual word. It appears only three times in the New Testament. It means to move out much like today, uh, secular Greek sources would, would describe work done by men who would, who would be trained, who would be commissioned to go out and clear a path before an army. We have the same thing today. We have engineers. We have this corps that would, that would go out and clear paths for foot soldiers. So that way they can advance, they can march on, and they would have a clear, clear uh, line of sight. Paul says, my imprisonment has been just like those men who go out and clear a path for an army. He says it has cleared a way for the gospel to march on. Somehow these chains have been like a corps of engineers, removing obstacles, removing roadblocks for the gospel to advance, even though it appears like the opposite is true. Even though it appears as though I am so restricted right now, like there is very little that I can do. The gospel is moving forward and it is advancing because these chains have actually cleared the way for it to go even further than I thought it could. Go ahead and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We just read from this passage of scripture just a little bit ago. But we're going to hit the fast forward button on Paul's life for a minute. We're going to find ourselves six years later where Paul finds himself imprisoned in Rome for a second time. 
This time he isn't under house arrest. This time he's full-on incarcerated. He is chained to a wall in the Mamertine prison. And this time he won't make it out alive. He is about to be beheaded for the cause of Christ. This letter of 2 Timothy will be the last thing he ever writes. But look at what he says there in verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ. Don't forget Jesus. Keep him first and foremost in your mind, in your thoughts, and in your heart. And who is this Jesus? Risen from the dead. He is the Son of God. He is the power of God. He is the one who has raised from the dead. He is also the offspring of David. He's the Messiah. He is the one the Old Testament talked about. The one the Old Testament prophesied about. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. He is the one who fulfills all of the scriptures. That Jesus. Don't forget him. Remember him. The son of God and the son of man. As preached in my gospel. And now now Paul can't help himself. He's mentioned the gospel. He can't mention the gospel without talking about it. He has to now step aside for a minute and give us an excursion, or excursus about the gospel. He says, for which I am suffering. I am suffering for this gospel, bound with chains as a criminal. But then what does he say after that? Even though the messenger is chained, even though he is bound like a criminal and restricted in his actions, he says, but the word of God is not bound. During the years of persecution under the Roman Empire, Christians sought refuge in underground caverns just outside of Rome. They dug almost 600 miles of catacombs. And over a 300-year period, 10 generations of Christians were buried there. It's on my bucket list to someday make it to Rome and visit them for myself. I would love to do that one day. If you want to take up a collection for a sabbatical after I've been here 25 years, I will more than, more than gladly accept that and you know where I'm going. I'm going to Rome. Not for the same reason Paul had, but I definitely want to check out this burial site. It's super cool. Archaeologists estimate that up to 4 million Christians were buried in the catacombs. One of the most common inscriptions found at the bottom of the catacombs is this little phrase from 2 Timothy 2.9. The word of God is not bound. You can't stop the gospel. Many have tried. All have failed. And why is that? Why can't you stop the gospel? Well, look at the next verse in verse 10. He says, therefore, I endure everything. Everything. Give me your best shot, world. Hit me. I will endure everything for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those who are saved, those whom God has chosen since before laying the foundations of the world. He wrote their names in a book, and he's not going to lose any of them. For those people who have been appointed for salvation, for the elect of God, he says, for their sake, so that they may also obtain that salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul knew that wherever he went, it didn't matter where it was, he could preach a message to a random crowd of people, and he knew that the elect, those whom the Father had called and chosen, those people would respond in faith and repentance. He knew it, and that gave him confidence. That gave him a a, a supreme confidence when it comes to the power of the gospel, 
when it comes to the message because he knows that God will succeed, that the message will go forth and it will do everything that God has designed and has planned for it to accomplish. Everything. Church, the word of God is not bound. You can stop the messenger, but you cannot stop the message. You can impede the Christian, but you cannot imprison the cause of Christ. Back in Philippians, you can almost hear the astonishment in Paul's voice as he writes this. He says, everything that has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Every roadblock has been removed. These chains that have been placed here, they limit my opportunity and my impact, but God has flipped it around, and now these chains have cleared a path for the gospel to march forward, unimpeded, unobstructed. There is nothing here that is going to get in the way of God's gospel going out and accomplishing God's work in his elect. That is the first benefit of persecution. It removes the roadblocks. Number two, intense persecution fans the flame. It fans the flame. Look at verse 13. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, this thing has gotten out of hand. This thing is out of control. For as much as they have tried to limit the gospel by placing Paul in chains, they have actually fanned the flames and the fire is spreading. And they don't know what to do with it. It's like trying to put a fire out with gas. They're just making it worse. Paul says these chains of mine have so helped the furtherance of the gospel that now the entire imperial guard All of them, they know why I'm here. They know the gospel. They know what I'm all about. Why does Paul single them out here in this text? Who are these imperial guards? Well, the Greek word here for imperial is praetorium. The praetorium guards were the best of the best that Rome had to offer. These were the Navy SEALs, the Special Forces, the FBI, and the Secret Service all rolled into one. They were Caesar's personal bodyguards. Their home base of operation was Caesar's palace. They came out of Caesar's palace. They were in and out of the palace constantly. There were 9,000 of them, hand-picked, rigorously trained. These guys were tough. They were the elite of the elite. Sometimes they exercised control over Caesar himself. That's how much power they had. They were the force called upon by the Senate to depose old emperors as well as promote new ones. They they were more than just mere foot soldiers. These were the powers behind the throne. These men received the highest honors, the best tax breaks, special privileges, double the pay, and the best retirement package imaginable. They could only serve for 12 years because the job was so demanding and so much was expected of them. And once they retired, they were set for life. This speaks volumes concerning the threat that they saw in Paul. That the authorities would assign the most elite fighting force in Rome to watch over his house arrest. And not just mere foot soldiers. Notice Paul says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And you ask yourself, how is that possible? We're talking about 9,000 rough and tough guys throughout 9,000 of the toughest, meanest, and greatest fighting force in Rome? How does that happen? 
Well, it all comes down to this word imprisonment found in verses 13, 14, and 17. The word literally means to be bound in chains. Remember uh, Ephesians. Let's go ahead and uh, look over at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You remember Ephesians was written during the same two-year imprisonment when Paul wrote to the Philippians. In Ephesians chapter 6, how does he refer to himself there in verse 20? He says, for which I am an ambassador in chains. An ambassador in chains. Now let's go ahead and flip over to Acts 28. Acts chapter 28. Once Paul arrives in Rome, he calls together the Jewish leaders and he explains to them how he got there. Acts 28 talks about this house arrest that he is currently under. Look at what he says there in Acts 28, starting in verse 20. He says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. This chain, the chain that Paul is referring to, is about 18 inches long. It wasn't very long at all. It was attached to his wrist like a, a, an extra-large handcuff. He wasn't allowed to remove it. He had it on him at all times, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year. Paul wore this chain with the Praetorian guard attached to the other end. Privacy wasn't an option. Paul didn't have alone time. These guards would rotate through six-hour shifts. They were always with him. And where one soldier would finish his shift and unchain himself, the next man would come along and attach himself. For two solid years, Paul had a Roman soldier less than 18 inches away. And yet he says to the Philippians, they know that my imprisonment is for Christ. Literally, he says, they know that I am a prisoner of Christ. This is similar to what he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't consider himself a prisoner of Rome. Notice, he, he, he considers himself a prisoner of Christ. He does this again in Ephesians 4 and at least three more times in the book of Philemon. So while he's chained to this Roman guard, he doesn't consider himself to be this guard's prisoner, to be Rome's prisoner. He says, I am a prisoner of Christ. He says, things look bad and Rome might have the key, but I am right where my master wants me. These soldiers, the best of the best, they're simply doing their job. They've been assigned to keep a chain on Paul, to keep him captive, but that's not how Paul sees it. Paul the preacher might not be able to leave the house and preach to an open crowd, but God has given him a captive audience. As Paul sees it, he's not chained to them, they are chained to him. And they're trapped. They can't get away from the Apostle Paul. As each soldier hears the gospel, as each soldier is with him night and day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they see his life, they hear his message. As people come to visit him, as Paul preaches some of his best sermons from from this rented house under house arrest in Rome, the soldiers are there. They're hearing the message. They're seeing his life. They're being exposed to the gospel firsthand through the best possible person they could, and that is the Apostle Paul. And as a result, they're being saved. They're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 
And as they hear the gospel and respond to the gospel and is converted, they then turn around and they tell other soldiers until the whole Praetorian Guard knows. And it doesn't stop there. Paul says, it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest. Now, who are these all the rest? I want you to turn with me to the very end of Philippians. The very end of Philippians. This is remarkable. This is one of those little verses. It's so easy to just read over quickly, especially as you conclude a letter and not give it much thought. But look at what he says here in Philippians chapter 4 in verse 22. He says, and all the saints greet you. That's every Christian, every believer in Rome that I know of. They all give you their greetings. But then he goes on to add, especially those of Caesar's household. Caesar's household. The unstoppable gospel has penetrated even as far as Caesar's family. If Paul had been allowed to come and go as he pleased, if he had not been chained to the palace guards, Caesar's bodyguards, then the gospel would have traveled many places, but it would have never made it as far as Caesar's household. That is how unstoppable the gospel really is. Even Nero, as awful as he was, as terrible of a man and a dictator as he was, even Nero couldn't prevent his own family from getting saved. The greater they try to oppose Paul, the hotter the flame burns and the farther the message goes. D.A. Carson writes, Paul proved to be such an extraordinary prisoner and his witness so telling that stories about him circulated very quickly. It was not that each of the Praetorian soldiers took a turn guarding Paul and therefore heard his story from his own lips, but rather every soldier who was assigned to this duty heard the gospel and perhaps something of his testimony, and then told others. Paul was neither a hardened criminal nor a suave white-collar swindler. Instead of protesting his innocence, he spent his time talking about a Jew called Jesus, who had been crucified at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and if Paul is to be believed, had somehow risen from the dead. And according to this prisoner, not only will this Jesus be our judge on the last day, But the only hope that anyone has of being truly accepted by God is to trust in this Jesus. In short, Paul was proving to be such an extraordinary prisoner that stories about him began to circulate around the palace, and not only stories about him, but the gospel story as well. And that, Paul insists, is wonderful. Persecution fans the flames. It fans the flames. In the 17th century, the Church of England found Pastor John Bunyan's message unacceptable. So they did what anyone in a position of power would do. They tried to stop him. They threw him into prison. And like a faithful prisoner of Christ, he began to quickly preach to the prisoners there in the courtyard. But something unexpected happened. As John refused to lower his voice or remain quiet, crowds started gathering outside of the prison walls to hear him preach. Literally hundreds of people from the town of Bedford and the surrounding villages would gather daily. Now, for those that have a really hard time getting out of bed in the morning on Sundays, be a good story to remind them. People would gather daily outside of the wall just to hear him preach God's word. As you can imagine, something like that doesn't go unnoticed. So leadership decided to move John deep into the inner sanctum, somewhere farther into the darker recesses of the prison. And they commanded him to stop preaching. 
It would have appeared to anyone that Bunyan's ministry had come to an end. And yet, as many of you know, it is from that quiet cell that he went on to write that classic novel that has ministered to millions, The Pilgrim's Progress. So let me ask you this. Friend, Christian, lover of the Lord, what are you doing with your present circumstances? Guys like John Bunyan and the Apostle Paul, they weren't complainers. They didn't grumble. They didn't complain. They didn't let their limitations dictate their actions either. They simply remained faithful wherever God put them. They just opened their mouth and they released the power of the gospel. So where has God placed you? And I have to ask you, will you be faithful to open your mouth and watch the unstoppable gospel blast its way forward? Whatever your circumstance, whatever you're chained to, God has strategically placed you right where you are, right where he wants you. And all we have to do is look to him, get our eyes off of ourselves and back onto Christ and others. And in doing so, share that gospel message. But to do that, friends, you have to actually say something. Many of you grew up like I did, hearing that old axiom, how does it go? Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary. That's right, a few of you have heard it as well. Use words. Well, I hate to break it to you. But in order to preach the gospel, you have to use words. A good life, a happy life, Even a godly life is not enough. You have to open your mouth. You have to share God's truth. You have to share the message. Much like the difference between general revelation and special revelation, general revelation, the fact that that man is without excuse, every man is worthy of judgment, just by looking at nature, we can see that all of this was put together by a creator. There is enough there in general revelation to condemn a man before God. There is not enough here in nature that's observable that will point a man to Jesus Christ, that will present the powerful gospel of salvation to a human being. For that, you need special revelation. That's why we have this book. Friends, you have to open your mouth. You have to be faithful to release this unstoppable gospel, to share it with others, to let them know that Jesus is the Son of God that he came to earth, he lived a perfect life, he never disobeyed the Father once, he never broke God's law, he never sinned, he lived a perfect life, and he went to the cross and he died a sinner's death. He never became a sinner, he never was a sinner, but he took the wrath of God and the full-on punishment for sin upon himself there on that cross so that sinners could look to him, place their faith in him, and be saved. So that When God looks at that sinner, he no longer sees that person's sin. He no longer condemns them according to their sin. Instead, he sees the perfect obedient life of his son. Because at the cross, he looked at his son and he saw your sin. Jesus paid it all. And he paid it all for us and for the glory of the Father. He died, he was buried. And he was raised again. And those who place their faith in Christ, who trust him for their salvation, who literally come to him with nothing in their hands to say, I have earned this, I deserve this. Those people who come to him and say, I'm putting all of my faith, all of my trust, my whole life is in your hands 
for your salvation, for your blood to be applied to me, for the Father to credit your righteousness to my unrighteous account, those people are saved, gloriously saved. And we need to send that message to the world. We need people to hear it because it is the power of God unto salvation. We have to open our mouths wherever we are. If you're a stay-at-home mom, your kids need to hear this message. If you're a businessman, your coworkers need to hear this message. If you're a student, your classmates need to hear this message. Wherever you are, this is a message worth telling. And don't just pray for the right moment or the right opportunity. Pray for faithfulness. Pray that God would give you the boldness to speak the truth without fear. We're gonna get to that here in a minute in our message. Just open your mouth and release the lion from his cage. Watch the spirit work through you in ways that you never thought possible. That's the second benefit of persecution. It doesn't just remove the roadblocks, it fans the flames. And then finally here, we see that intense persecution ignites the indifferent. It ignites the indifferent. Look at verse 14, he says, and most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Once again, the opposite of what we might expect has happened. The vision of Paul in chains, it doesn't discourage the saints, it encourages them. His negative example of being treated like a hardened criminal, losing his freedom, relinquishing his privacy, being confined to his quarters, all of that has given others more confidence to go out and raise their voices and to be more bold to speak the gospel clearly and loudly. Typically, folks who are put in jail, they're made to be examples to others so that others will not do whatever it is that they did to get there. I mean, what's that, Johnny? You don't want to go to jail for the rest of your life? Well, that's simple. Just don't murder a man in cold blood like Uncle, Uncle Bobby did. I mean, that, that's typically how we view jail, right? It's a deterrent. It's not something you want. Nobody wants to be incarcerated. But the negative example of imprisonment, it's not, it's not designed to encourage the behavior that caused it. And yet the gospel does exactly that. It presents the opposite effect. Persecution ignites the indifferent to action. It moves the sleeping Christian and it places the nominal believer on the front lines. Opposition is a wake-up call for those on the sidelines to get up and to get out there and get in the game. We don't shrink back when we hear of opposition. It has been well said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So when opposition comes, what do we do? Church, we rise to the call of Christ. In 1555, Bloody Mary issued the order for Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley to be burned alive at the stake. The crime that these English reformers had committed was simply sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As they were tied together back to back to the same stake, the flames rising on all sides, Latimer famously shouted to Ridley, he said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And as the flames overtook their bodies, 
that fire ignited a reformation in England that continues to inspire men and women to speak the gospel more boldly and without fear. Persecution has its benefits, folks. But then again, I guess it all depends on how you look at it. Perhaps you're sitting there and you're thinking, nope. This message has been all about chains, prison, and burning people alive. I am not seeing the benefit. You can have all of that. I'll just do whatever I can to remain comfortable. I'll do whatever I can, as little as what can be expected or asked of me. Just so long as I don't have to suffer. Just so long as I don't have to endure any kind of ridicule, any kind of pain, any kind of slander. Church, I I hope that that's not you today. Because God doesn't use people who care more about themselves than Christ and others. Paul didn't think like that. Paul didn't complain. He didn't go out looking for trouble, but he didn't avoid it either. He simply remained faithful wherever he was, whatever the circumstance, whoever he was chained to. But above all else, he wanted to see the power of God do its work in as many lives as possible. Believer, this world already hates you. I hate to break it to you, but they do. They hate Christ. And if they know that you belong to him, if they know that there is anything, a part of you, that could possibly be like Christ, guess what? They hate you too. Don't look to them for inspiration. Don't go to them for comfort. Rather, look to godly examples. Those who will ignite your fire for the Lord. And then go a step further and be an example to others. Be a John Knox. Be a Hugh Latimer, a Charles Spurgeon, or a George Whitfield. Be a Christ. Follow the example of Christ. He is our ultimate example. And if you do that, then you will be, as the text says, much more bold to speak the word without fear. Well, it seems like the more the messenger of the gospel gets persecuted, the farther the message goes. Bernard Ram, an expert in the area of hermeneutics, writes, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and committal read. But somehow, the corpse never stays put. Many have tried to kill that power of God that saves sinners. Others will try, and despite their best efforts, no one will be able to stop the gospel. Nero tried. Both Peter and Paul were executed under his rule. And yet they still speak to us today because the Holy Spirit saw fit to inspire scripture through them. In the year 303, the emperor Diocletian issued an edict to, quote, stop Christians from worshiping and to destroy their scriptures, end quote. And yet here we are. And how many of you have your Bibles in your hands with you today? You want to know why Diocletian failed? Because in Matthew twenty four thirty five, Jesus said what? He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. In fact, just 25 years after Diocletian's edict, the next Roman emperor, Constantine, issued a new edict. And this is long before the printing press. This was a big deal. He said 50 copies of the scriptures would be prepared at the expense of the government. 
Friends, this book, this message is indestructible. No other book could possibly survive the scrutiny and the attacks that this book has had leveled against it. So as we close our time together today, I would ask you to consider the power contained within this book, the power that is contained within the message of the gospel itself. Again, it is not your responsibility to drag people into the kingdom of God. You can't reach into someone's chest and give them a new heart. You can't change them as much as you want to sometimes. You can't. Only the Spirit of God can do that with his gospel. And those who are elect unto salvation at the appointed time, when they hear the gospel, they will respond in faith and repentance. You can count on that. This is God's work. This is his gospel. And we are his people And the way that the gospel goes forth and changes and transforms lives and brings people into the kingdom of God is by faithful men and women wherever they are, whatever their circumstance, whatever they're chained to, it's for them to open their mouth and simply be faithful. So church, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, consider this example that we have in Paul. Be emboldened by this example to speak the word of God more boldly, more more clearly, and without fear. It is fearful. It is a scary thing sometimes for us to open our mouths, for us to stand in direct opposition to the world. But men and women have died for this, folks. They They have looked at this world square in the eye, and God has given them the strength and the comfort and the power that they need to succeed. Even if they burn the body, even if they kill the flesh, the spirit lives on. And we look forward to that second, that second resurrection, that, that first resurrection for us where we will receive a new body. Friends, don't shrink away from this message. This message is powerful. This message, this message is, is alive. And you have to speak it. You have to be faithful in releasing the message. So as we close our time together, I do want to leave you with this final powerful quote from H.L. Hastings. He had this to say about the Bible. He said, infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels, with all their assaults, Make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of Christians in his dominion to an old statesman and warrior, that man said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of the infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are all worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die and the book still lives. Church, let's live, teach, preach, and die for this powerful, unstoppable gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
once again we come before you humbled by the power of your grace, of your mercy that you have extended towards us, but even for the privilege that you have given us to proclaim this message to lost sinners. Lord, you are the God of salvation. You are a good and gracious and a kind and loving God. And Lord, you have accomplished so much, so much for your name's sake. We know that every promise that is contained here within this book will come to pass. We know that you are a God of total and complete faithfulness. Lord, we trust you. We worship you. We glorify you. Lord, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to speak the word boldly and without fear. Lord, this is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. God, I pray that men would believe. I pray that you would open hearts, that this word would find good soil. If there is anyone here this morning who is not a believer, who is not a Christian, who has not, has not surrendered their life to you, then Lord, I pray that you would not let them go. I pray that your powerful gospel would find its way into the, into the hearts of the elect this morning, that it would produce great fruit, that you would call them out of darkness into light, that you would replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh, that you would birth them again a second time so that they would only die once and not twice in the days to come. Lord, bless your word. Bless your servants and produce a harvest that that grows as a result of faithfulness found here at First Baptist Church. Thank you for these people. Thank you for gathering us together, for making us a body, for making us a church, whereas before we were all just individual lost sinners. Lord, now we are collected sinners, saved by grace, covered by the cross. Lord, thank you for the powerful work of your gospel. Thank you for transforming us day after day, for not leaving us as we were, but changing us and conforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. I pray that each and every one of us would capture a heart to reach the lost. Wherever we are, whatever our quarters, whatever our chains, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful, faithful to open our mouths, to share this great truth, to study this truth for ourselves, for it to get down deep into our throats and into our hearts. And I pray that it would just burst out of our chest, that those around us would know, that everyone would know, that the whole of our families and even all the rest and all the others beyond that, that they would know who we are and what we're all about, that we are all about the gospel. We are all about the transforming power of Christ. We're all about you, Lord. We love you, and we thank you again for your powerful, unstoppable gospel. In your name, amen.